What a beautiful set of music that was just to worship our great God. He loves us. How good he is. Uh, one announcement before we get started. Uh, there is a sheet out in the foyer for those who are going to the church camp in April. Just a reminder to have your balances in by March, if possible. That's helpful for us because we'll, we're, we have to pay the Coleroy Center. So uh, check that out if you're signed up to go. Really look forward to that time. It's starting to come together as far as the planning of it. And it should be just an amazing time uh, mid-April. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for just being our Father, that we can call you Father as Jesus called you Father when he taught the disciples to pray. And I pray that we would look to you uh, knowing that you do protect us, you do provide for us, you hear our prayers and answer them, that there's nothing that comes against us that is too strong for you to overcome because you have overcome. And thank you for Jesus and all that he's done, all that he is doing, all that you plan to do. And we pray that we would be uh, walking in faith and obedience to you, receiving your love and just sharing your love with everyone we meet in Jesus name. Amen. So we'll be in Romans chapter eight, uh, verse 22. As I was putting this message together, I was thinking of the privileges we have in Christ and the word privilege. It's defined as a right or advantage that some people have that others don't. And some, I think more modern day is uh, some see it unethical that some would have a privilege that others don't have. But we are all unique. We have different roles and places that God has uh, given us by his grace. And sometimes that word, I feel it can be weaponized as an accusation against the privileged. And those who don't have can be seen as unfairly treated or victims of injustice. But my aim is not to wade into your feelings about the term, but to say that we as human beings all share the privilege of being created in the image of God. That's the reality for all of us. And you have a unique privilege to be you, whether you like that or not, because there is no one who is you or will ever be you. And God loves you just how he made you. And we are privileged to live in Australia. We are privileged to go to church and to hear the word of God. And as children of God, we've received so many privileges and blessings from him Privileges he's offered freely to everyone who will come to him in faith. And so this word it, privilege, it's a matter of perspective because what one deems a special privilege, another person might seen as a heavy burden to avoid. I think, uh, I, I believe I, I know I am privileged as a married man, but others may see monogamous marriage as a disadvantage or making intolerable restrictions that hinder personal freedom. So it depends how you look at things. And Paul in this chapter, he's emphasized the work of the Holy spirit to sanctify us as God's children, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We're not debtors to the flesh to live according to the flesh, but to God because he has saved us and adopted us as his children. And all we suffer now for the sake of Christ cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Did you know that suffering with Christ 
is a privilege of a believer that results in closer fellowship with God. That is a great blessing to have the fellowship of Christ's sufferings, knowing we will be glorified with him one day. Even suffering for a Christian becomes a source of joy because we know Christ suffers with us and he won't leave or forsake us. The futility of life. Sometimes it, it seems that life is futile, that we're, we never seem to get a leg up, but know that this is God's purpose. This is God's, well, it's his design to accomplish a purpose. As we read in Romans eight twenty. It says for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Suffering isn't pointless for by faith, we look to a glorious future with Christ that's already begun. So we take up our text in Romans eight, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. All of creation is groaning with labor pangs, something that's painful, awaiting the deliverance from the bondage of sinful corruption because this whole world is suffering the effects of sin, right? Death came into the world because of sin and the world longs to be free of the rule of sin and death and the, and the sway of Satan longing for deliverance from Jesus. When he returns, we've been given the Holy spirit as a down payment that he has indeed purchased us. He will make good on giving us the inheritance. He has promised us we have been saved. We have eternal life with him. We've been spiritually secured and adopted as his children. Yet we gladly look forward to the day when we'll be free of these corruptible bodies and ever be in the presence of God, free from indwelling sin, sickness, pain, suffering. Now, as I age, I have caught myself groaning, just doing menial tasks like standing up. Or sitting for an amount of time like, oh, these old bones are starting to creak. And some people will say, well, you don't know anything yet. That's probably true. But uh, yeah, pain, like you've done something basic. Like I did a little yard work and you're like, whoa, okay, I'm feeling something. Uh, recovery from surgery or soreness from exercise. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. We're reminded that our bodies are our temporary dwelling place. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. Paul compares our physical bodies to a tent. It's just a temporary structure that we're living in right now. And uh, we know and are convinced that when God allows this tent to be destroyed, uh, we'll not be homeless. We won't be naked. We won't be without a, a, a habitation because we will be with him in a new dwelling. We have the eternal uh, state where we'll be in his presence in heaven, 
but we'll also have a new body that will not be corruptible by sin, disease, pain, or death for all of these will pass away. I can't even imagine how things will be when those things have totally passed away out of memory, out of reality. They've been overcome completely by the life of Jesus Christ. So do you, are you looking forward to a new glorified body like the one Jesus had after his resurrection? Doesn't grow weary. Doesn't become sick. Doesn't grow older. Let us not be as little children that are more interested in the goodies that Jesus has for us rather than him, the giver when he, he is coming to take his church. And when we are raised together with him, his glory outshines anything that he could possibly give us. So this eager awaiting the adoption and redemption of our body, notice that it says our body, not our bodies. It alludes to the rapture of the church the body of Christ being physically united with our savior. Like we will be together as a body now and forever. So it's looking forward to that physical personal union with Christ in a glorified body. Romans eight, verse 24, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope for why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance we often say hope in a wistful manner, like we're wishing for something without any certainty. Like I hope we win, right? I don't know if we're going to win, but I wish we would win. Or I hope you brought your appetite. You may have eaten something 30 minutes before coming over for dinner, but there's a lot of food and I hope that you have some capacity to eat it. This hope, when we say that in the Bible, it speaks of a sure expectation and anticipation. It's saying, you know, something before it happens. You're not hoping like I wish it will happen, but you have a knowledge of what will happen. And therefore you place faith in that because it's true. Not if it could be true, but because it is, it's kind of like if you knew the final score before you watched the grand final and you were watching a replay, you could have total confidence. Your confidence would not be in your confidence would have to be in the one who told you what this final score was. Right. And if you trust that source, you're like, I'm not surprised by this. The final score is exactly what I expected it to be. We're saved with the hope, this confidence and sure expectation. Jesus has died for our sins. He has raised us spiritually to new life and that someday we will be glorified with him. We will be with him with one another, all his adopted children forever. And we have that expectation that we are certain of, we are assured of it. It is guaranteed by God's word and by who he is. Now the point that Paul's making is once the thing that we hope for is accomplished, we no longer hope for it. It makes no sense to anticipate what is now in the past, right? You can't, you can't anticipate it if it's over. Since we continue life in these bodies that are going to physically wear out and die, we eagerly wait for the redemption with perseverance. And that means to be steadfast and patient, even though we groan to say, okay, I know what God has said. I know what Jesus has done. I know what he has promised. And that this pain that I'm experiencing, it's not forever because I'm not going to be in this body forever. I'm not going to be on this earth forever. Jesus has overcome and I am an 
I'm more than an overcomer through him, as we will see. So we may groan due to pain or trouble, but we are not troubled because we have hope and rest in Christ, our risen savior. Verse 26, likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings, which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We're enabled to persevere with patience and endurance, not by the willpower of your flesh, but by the power of the Holy spirit in our weaknesses, plural, that is our condition. One of weakness really in every way weaknesses. It's good for us to realize that our natural and our current position is one of weakness that we need Christ. We need the power of God in us to endure and to persevere with joy. It's only by God's presence. We are strengthened. So one way that our weakness is shown is by our inability to know what to pray. Have you guys ever wondered, you heard about a situation. It's completely overwhelming. You're like, I don't even know how to pray about this. I don't even know what to say. Sometimes our spiritual weakness is shown by our complete lack of prayer. We don't even think to pray much less think about what we should pray. We groan within ourselves because of physical pain we also can grow grown because of the problems that keep happening. The troubles, the tragedy that's way beyond our power to help. But we have this great assurance. It's so awesome that when you do not know what to pray, the Holy spirit intercedes for us. He communicates with God according to God's will. It's like the spirit of God is able to take our feeble attempts at prayer and put the desires of our heart in his own words to God. And we know that if we pray according to the will of God, he hears us. And if he hears us, we have what we have asked of him. So this help from God in our praying, it's indispensable for us. Our lack of knowledge of God's word, our lack of the grasp of proper language, the situation itself that's overwhelming. None of that hinders us from God's will, praying for God's will and his good purposes to be done. Now, some people imagine that there are certain people who have like a direct line to heaven, whereas theirs goes through a lot of, you know, it's kind of like fiber to the premises or fiber to the node, like fiber to the node. You can only have so fast of an internet connection, but fiber to the premises like that's better. So let's talk to someone and get that person praying. Who's got a better connection than me. You have the Holy spirit. You have the Holy spirit. You have a connection with God. That is perfect. So praise God for this, that he makes intercession for us. It's the prayer of faith that God responds to not the person. It's the prayer of faith that God hears and he answers and the Holy spirit helps us in our weaknesses. So good, admit our, let's be those who admit our weaknesses, but then let's rely upon God's strength and not on maybe another person or our own knowledge or our own wisdom that will accomplish what God wants. He's the one who does it. 
Hebrews 7, 25, it says of Christ, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So we have the Holy spirit within us who is interceding for us to the father. We have Jesus who's alive and he's living to intercede for us. Your prayer goes through to God by his grace. The other day I was praying for someone and I said the wrong name by mistake. Now I don't need to be upset or wonder that my prayer was, Oh no, that prayer is disqualified because I said the wrong name. He's going to go and try to help people with this name, but that's not the right name. God, I don't need to beat myself up about this. God doesn't turn us away on a technicality. Well, actually it says this because I am weak. I forget names. I say the wrong thing because the Holy spirit himself makes intercession for us. Jesus is living to make intercession for us. My confidence can be in the almighty God who knows my heart and can accomplish his will without me being perfect rather than. So I don't need to trust the words that I say or anything but God because he helps us in our weaknesses. Prayer isn't the means of having our will done in heaven or on earth, but in seeking, asking and cheering on God to do his will in heaven in earth and in us. Verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, those he also these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. Even as we have assurance of forgiveness and eternal life through faith in Christ, we can have confidence in knowing all things work together for good to those who love God. Now we're often looking at something we think is good for us, but God's faithful to make all things work for good to us. So it's like in every situation, there is good that God is doing towards you. He's directing goodness to us by his grace all the time, even though we groan even though we may hurt and we do. And this is truth that we ought to take to heart personally. And we can apply to all the situations when we think what good can come from this? What good is there in this? Well, we can know we, we may not understand why God has allowed something or how it could be redeemed, how we could make it work together for good to us, but we can have all confidence. He is working good. And he will work good to us. It's by faith in God and the indwelling spirit who comforts us and helps us that we can stand confident in him. Now we don't need to understand. This is just an illustration. We don't have to understand the inner workings of an appliance or an electronic device or a car to know what it does, right? You don't have to understand it to know it does something. I can take a remote and I can point it at the TV and push a button expecting that it's going to turn on. And if it doesn't turn on, then I know something's wrong. Either the battery's dead, but I don't have to understand all the circuitry, all the electronics, the software that's needed to make this thing actually work and connect to my TV. 
I just know it works. And so I use it all the time and we can have the same confidence with God. Like, I don't know how he's making this work for good, but I can have total confidence that he knows what he's doing. He has purposed in the situation to cause good to me from it. Joseph, he understood this about God's character. He said to his brothers who had previously betrayed him and sold him as a slave in Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. Some people identify the lowest moment of their life as their best moment because in their despair, they turned to Christ and found him to be their savior. Paul continues his thought on God working all things together for his good purposes. It says for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Those who are the called according to God's purpose, they've willing to chose, they've willingly chosen to answer his call by faith in Jesus. So the trials and troubles that we face, the pain we endure, it should not, it should not shake our confidence in God who knows all things, who sanctifies us. As it says in two Timothy two 19, nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. Because we're finite, because we don't know things, we don't know people. You would say that about people, right? You're like, oh, I know him, or I don't really know you. <laughs> we may not even say that to their face, because that could be rude. So we're like, I really don't know much about, and I'd like to learn more about your background or who you are. But we need to observe. We need to talk with. We need to interact with people to get to know them. We can't just know them by seeing them. We have to interact with them. But because God knows all things... As our creator, he intimately knew us completely before we were born. And this is more than an awareness of knowing someone exists, but God really knows everyone. He knows them in and out for their entire life. We don't know, but God knows who we are. So those whom God foreknows are his. He knows who are his. So those that he knows are his, it says he predestines or determines that all will be sanctified into the image of Jesus. So God's purpose for every single one of his adopted children is to be like Jesus and to be glorified with Jesus. That's his plan for all of his adopted children. And we can count on him to fulfill those promises and purposes in us. Now it's really important that we don't conflate God's foreknowledge with predestination. These are two different words. They're not synonymous. And I'll, I can show you the difference between them. When I worked in a refinery, I was told when you hear this particular siren and they played it for us, you need to muster or assemble at a particular place. We were told on a day that there would be a drill. Listen for the siren. When you hear the siren, you don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, this is what you need to do. Drop your tools, drop everything and go there. So I had foreknowledge of an upcoming event that would happen that day. And my course of action was already determined, right? I had predetermined what I was going to do. When I hear the sound, I drop my tools and I go to the muster point. Now, because, because God knows everything, 
for all time and all eternity. He doesn't need to be informed about anyone. He doesn't need someone to pray for salvation for him to know that they are his, because it says the Lord knows who are his and those who are his. He has a predestined outcome for them. He has a plan for them to be made into the image of Jesus and to be glorified with him forever. That's his determination. He's saying, this is what I will do for all of my children. I have predestined them to be conformed into the image of Christ. And that process of sanctification is going on right now, bit by bit. We've been sanctified, set apart for God. We are being sanctified. And one day we'll be completely sanctified when we are glorified with him in our new bodies. He has ordained us to be conformed into the image or likeness of his son. I like Webster's definition. He says predestined is to predetermine or foreordain to appoint or ordain beforehand by an unchangeable purpose. This purpose that God has for you as a child of God to be made into the image of Jesus, that's unchangeable. Just like God who is unchangeable. That is his, it, this, this should not be a source of pride for us. This should be deeply humbling that he would have such plans for us. He continues in verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called, whom he called, these he also justified, and whom he justified, these he also glorified. So believers can know we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus. We've also been called by him. We've never imposed ourselves upon God. In choosing to follow Jesus, we now realize we have been chosen by him. These, it says, he is also justified. That means being pardoned from sin, to have the righteousness of Christ credited to us. And all those he has justified, made legally righteous, he is also glorified. And I like that glorified here is in past tense. In God's sight, it's as good as done. And we have received his glory in these earthen vessels. We have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. Now, because God's eternal and he's all powerful, John could refer to Jesus in Revelation 13, 8 as the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. That's pretty wild, isn't it? The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before sin ever came into the world, God had a predestined purpose, a provision of forgiveness and salvation. He would offer to all sinners because his will is that none should perish, but all come to repentance. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians one, starting at verse three. It's such a great passage that emphasizes God's blessing, his choosing, his adoption and acceptance is all God's doing by his grace. And of this, we have received through the gospel. Ephesians one, three says, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. Now, how awesome is God? And how awesome is this blessed with every spiritual blessing. So bless God 
for what he has done. He has chosen us. He has predestined us to be adopted as sons and to by Jesus Christ to himself, to the praise of his glory, accepted us in the beloved. I mean, it's, it boggles the mind. It's really wild to consider how awesome God is that he would do this for us. In the following chapters, we will speak more on the doctrines of God's sovereignty and election and that we are accepted in the beloved because God's will is none should perish. And he has sent Christ to pay that price for us. Romans eight, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. It's like after Paul lays out all that God has done and purposed and plans and how everything is working for good to us, he says, what more is there to say? Like, there's really no need to continue on this because of just how great this is. Like, let this sink in, let this change you and transform your outlook when you're groaning, when you're struggling, because look at what God has done. Look at what he's purposed and planned. Even in things that were meant for evil, he's meant it for good. And he launches into a series of questions to show any, any concern that God's unwilling or unable to deliver on his promises are illogical, completely unfounded. And these points that he's driving home through these questions is that our justification, our sanctification, our glorification are guaranteed in Christ. And he's going to carry out his plan perfectly. Now we, we make plans and we do, we forget them or we don't follow through on them, but God, he is able. And it's not like he's just able, but maybe unwilling. No, he's able and willing. And he's promised. And all we have to do is look at Christ and say, he promised a Messiah. It took a while, but he sent him and he died and he's risen and he's ascended. And he is interceding for us right now. This beginning where he says, if God is for us, it could be phrased as since God is for us, who can be against us when God's for you? What does it matter if anyone, the whole world's against you? There were a lot of people who hated Jesus. They hated Christians and the church from the beginning. And this is the time when he's writing this to people who have suffered persecution. And it seemed the whole world was against Christians who were persecuted, disowned by family, betrayed, beaten, arrested, and killed. And Paul knew this well because he was one who did that. He sought to do that against the church just to wreak havoc in the church. And he did a good job for a while until Jesus met him. But in light of God's power and his glory, since God is for us, what does it matter what anyone else did? Could they stop his good purposes? Could they hinder his plans? Looking back to God's work to redeem lost sinners by Jesus dying, it shows that God's willing, he's willing to give what's most precious to him and beloved for our sakes. Like Paul said earlier in this chapter, Romans 8, 16, it says the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. 
It's on the basis of Jesus suffering and providing atonement for us, not our suffering for him that we're made children of God through the gospel. It's because of what Jesus has done that we are children of God. And I think of if we talk about heaven sometimes and how glorious it will be with streets paved with gold, you know, 12 gates made with a single pearl and um, just how massive and and awesome it will be Um, mansions and everything. The, the value and preciousness of Christ far exceeds anything that's been made. There's no comparison between the value of Christ, the son of God and a massive city that's solid gold. But he gave us Christ. He's not just giving us a heavenly city or a new body. He's given us Christ. And if he's given us what's most precious, will he withhold anything good from us? No. You don't need a giant oyster to make a giant pearl because God created oysters to produce them. He can just make it. Isn't God awesome? Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 12, 32, do not fear little flock for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. We're just a little flock, but God's like, I want to give you everything. I want to give you myself. I want you to be with me forever because I love you. Because God has not withheld who is most precious, we can rest assured all our needs are met in Christ and will always be met. And so we have this confidence now of God's provision. Now his provision in the future and that he has already provided all things that pertain to life and godliness. This has already been given to us as it says in two Peter one, three. And so Paul at this stage, he's practically shouting with joy. He says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies God is the judge of all the earth. We're justified by faith in Christ. Not one charge can stick to us in Romans. This is the first reference to Christians as the elect. We'll see that Israel is also called the elect. It means that those are people he has chosen in a democratic election. We cast our votes and those who have the most votes are chosen to be, to serve as a public servant. And so it's just, being chosen. Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. And whatever you ask the father in my name, he may give you whatever you ask of the father. And then he said, when you pray, say our father who art in heaven, our father, he's saying the God that I call father is the God that you address when you pray and he is making intercession for us. So our prayers are heard and answered by God. We've been spiritually adopted as his own. We are co-heirs with Christ. We couldn't ever aspire to such a place in God's kingdom. Yet he has offered it to us freely by his grace. We've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Jesus has paid the price required to atone for our sins. The law that condemned us is now nailed to the cross. And so Paul's like, well, who condemns? Who is it that condemns us? Jesus died for us. He's risen. He's proven his power over sin and death. He's ascended to the right hand of the father and he's praying for us. He's on our side because we're on his side. Since God is for us, who can be against us? Whose word can 
sway or overrule what God has spoken because God spoke and it was so there was nothing. And he spoke everything that is into existence. Can anyone speak against that word? No. And then the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have beheld his glory. He continues in verse 35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword as it is written for your sake, we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. McGee observed this. He says, we enter this chapter with no condemnation. We conclude it with no separation. And in between all things work together for good. These words are just surging forth like a crescendo who shall separate us from the love of Christ. And he's writing to people who personally experienced all these trials and many more seven different trials here. And these things can be trials that we also fear that we would be lacking something. We would be persecuted, distressed, periled, imperiled. We live in perilous times, right? He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This does not refer to your love for God, but his love for you. When Paul wrote in two Corinthians five fourteen, the love of Christ compels us. It's the agape love of Christ that inspires us. Not the feelings that you have for him. Our feelings ebb and flow. My love is not constant, but his love is infinite and constant. It's continual. It's pursuing and active. The love of Jesus demonstrated on the cross to save us is given us through the Holy spirit. It's the fruit of the spirit love, a love that doesn't fluctuate a love that doesn't diminish a love that actually grows as we begin to yield to him and trust him more and realize like I am loved by God. And he wrote this, Paul did as a believer who faced tribulation for Christ and he was enduring it. He had come through a lot of things at this stage. Yet the love of God for him gave him complete confidence in all the trials that we are not just able to endure them, but more than conquerors through Jesus. Now this quote, it comes from Psalm 44. We actually studied it a couple weeks ago. It's a lament. And the cry of the Psalm is like, God awake, God help us. And the NIV rendering of the conclusion in Psalm 44, 25, it says this, we are brought down to the dust. Our bodies cling to the ground, rise up and help us redeem us because of your unfailing love. God's unfailing love. It never grows weary. He never gets tired of us. We're never hopeless or helpless because the almighty God loves us. He has redeemed us through the gospel. Jesus is risen. He's making intercession for us and the situation. Yes, it could seem hopeless. It could be hopeless and we may be accounted as sheep for the slaughter, but we have a good shepherd in Jesus and a savior. No one can separate us from God's love. 
And because of God's love, Paul could say, I am persuaded death nor life spirits or Satan, nothing that is or will ever be shall be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's no place on earth. There's no place in the furthest reaches of the galaxy or the universe where God is not present and his love is hindered from reaching you and actively doing good to you. Now he said, I'm persuaded. That means he's convinced both through the character of God, the truth of God's word, his own experience. He's like, I can say this with authority. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And you know, it can be difficult in your flesh to accept this as true right now. But God's will is that you would also be persuaded of this same thing, that nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus, that in all troubles, not once the troubles are over, I've conquered, but we are more than conquerors through Christ who loves us. But what's more than a conqueror? A Christian, a Christian is more than a conqueror. I'm, I'm content to just conquer, right? God has a better purpose that we would be more than a conqueror that we would be a son of his because winning doesn't give you a relationship. He has made that possible through his own blood, through his love. So in closing, I want to read a short passage from Matthew Henry's commentary. Now this is a real life example of the privilege of every Christian, even at the end of our days, Mr. Hugh Kennedy, an an eminent Christian of air, in Scotland, when he was dying, called for a Bible. But finding his sight gone, he said, turn me to the 80 of the Romans and set my finger at these words. I am persuaded that neither death nor life. Now, said he, is my finger upon them? And when they had told him it was, without speaking any more, he said, now God be with you, children. I breakfasted with you and shall sup with my Lord Jesus Christ this night. And so departed. What confidence in God's word. He's like, I can't even see. I can't even see anymore. Put my finger on that verse. I've eaten breakfast with you, but I'm going to eat dinner with Jesus. What confidence. life nor death. It can't separate us from his love. Mr. Kennedy didn't die. He departed. Where did he go? Into the presence of his savior who knew him, who loved him, who gave his life for him, who called him, who chose him. He had assurance of eternal life because God lives and God loves. And we too can have rest. Friends, are you persuaded that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is our privilege as his followers, as his children with eyes of faith to know God who is beyond knowledge and rest assured. Nothing can separate us from his love. Let's pray. Our father, thank you so much for your love for us that you've demonstrated it. You just didn't tell us about your love, but you have loved us with an everlasting love that the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world, and you've chosen us even before this world was, 
and you've purposed for us to be like Jesus and to be glorified with him. Lord, we thank you. We praise you and worship you. Blessed be your name. Lord, may you be honored and glorified both through our words as we sing now and also through our lives that we would live a life of praise to you because you are awesome. And because you love us, may your love shine through us, Lord. May your glory be shining brightly in the midst of tribulation, even when our eyes grow so dim that we cannot see. We can't read the words on the page. Lord, we would know you're in our hearts and you will carry us to be with you forever. Thank you for your spirit. Even now who comforts us and helps us in our weaknesses that even when we don't pray, we don't know what to pray. We don't know how to pray that you intercede for us. Thank you that you love us in Jesus name. Amen.